Now in the previous episode, I actually introduced the idea of Pentecost and I'm about to get into, well, really the nuts and bolts of the biggest issue that surrounds Pentecost that is so misunderstood, which is this idea of speaking in tongues. So here's what I would say. If you haven't listened to the previous episode yet, you might want to go back, pause right here, just grab the other one, and then come here and do a deep dive in. Here's the main idea for this lesson. So let me go ahead and tell you, and then I'm just going to get rocking through it. Main idea is that the Holy Spirit always reveals Jesus, and the Holy Spirit has come to us so that we might join Him in doing the exact same thing. The Holy Spirit does not come to reveal speaking in tongues, does not come. And in fact, if if you get off on any other thing besides revealing Jesus, you missed the main idea of the Holy Spirit. So let's go right into it, because throughout the book of Acts, we see at least five instances of people encountering the Holy Spirit in a way which is clearly identified as being, now get this, separate and in addition to salvation. I discussed that concept in the previous episode. Now, although my friend Van, I referenced him last time too, would have loved to create a formula for this whole baptism of the Holy Spirit thing, that's the biblical phrase, you can't create a formula. It won't fit in a box. God will not be contained by a box. Each event, I'm going to give you five, is entirely different, showing us the central focus is a pure relationship rather than some rote ritual. So I'm going to walk you through all five episodes, including the original Pentecost event, in the order that we see them in the book of Acts. Let me list them first, and then we'll just rock right through them. And and I'm going to give you an outline for each one so that you can start comparing and contrasting, and I'll throw some graphics in the show notes on my website. So here they are. Here's the five listed in Scripture. Acts 2, 1 through 4 is the first. That's at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls on the 120 who are in the upper room. Number two, Acts 8, 4 and following. We're in Samaria. Philip, he's one of the seven chosen in Acts 6, 1 when they choose the first uh, leaders besides the apostles. He leads a big revival. Number three, Acts 9, 10 through 19 and following. Saul becomes Paul after being blinded on the road to Damascus. That's one of the most famous stories of all in the New Testament. Uh, Number four. Acts 10.1 and following, especially Acts 10.34, Cornelius and his household become the first Gentile converts. And the fifth episode, it's in Acts 19.1-10, the disciples at Ephesus, they receive the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to review each of these in order, and then I'll provide you with the chart. You can look it up in the show notes that contrasts and compares these meetings, and I think that will help you. Now, I'm not going to include the whole text of from the Bible in the show notes, but but I'll reference it, and then I would encourage you just to get an open scripture and then just do a dive and just kind of launch off of that and look at my stories uh, side by side with what the scripture actually says there, and uh, that would probably be the best way to do a deep dive here. So the first occurrence shows us that it's not about speaking in tongues. First occurrence is Acts 2, 1 through 4. That's at Pentecost. The Spirit falls on the apostles uh, and the 120. Now, because the 120 spoke in other tongues during this celebration, modern-day churchgoers most often equate Pentecost with praying in tongues. However, as we saw earlier, 
neither tongues nor prayer were the focus of this event. Um, Now, I mentioned that in the previous episode. Pentecost was about celebration of the giving of the law, and Jesus, he poured the promised spirit on his church, and preaching was the focus of what happened at this event. Okay, so we should equate Pentecost with the Holy Spirit and power for witness, not speaking in tongues. So let me outline this. Look at the situation, and then we're going to look at the result, and then we'll make a few extra notes. We're going to do that for each of these encounters. Here's the situation. Pentecost. The 120 wait on the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had said in Acts 1-4. This is 10 days after the ascension, 50 days after the Passover, which was the crucifixion event. And it's important to remember that Pentecost was actually a festival that commemorated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Don't forget the imagery of the wind and the fire, which are present at both events. Now, the result of this is that the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they all begin speaking in tongues. Now, let me give you a few notes. Tongues in this passage is clearly a foreign language. Look at Acts 2, 8 and following. Other people who are there, they hear them. Now, remember, according to the previous episode, people have traveled from all over the known world that were Jewish to come celebrate Pentecost. This was one of the three times that if you could possibly make it, you would go to Jerusalem. This gift uh, was that the apostles, the 120, they were able to preach in foreign languages so that other people from other places heard them. The scripture actually says that the people who came together said, how is it that we, Parthians and Medes and Eliamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Cappadocia and Egypt, how is it that we hear in our own language the wonderful works of God? Now, that gift often occurs with missionaries even today. Some of them, they arrive on foreign soil. They possess command of the new language instantly without ever having studied it. Others study minimally, and then they speak incredibly well. Now, let me give you a footnote here because that foreign language bit might have just thrown some of you off. In the scripture, we see at least three different uses of tongues Uh, We see it, number one, foreign languages. That's in Acts 2. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Uh, Number two, we do see a private prayer language. That's in 1 Corinthians 14, 2 through 4, and 14, 14 through 15. And then we see it, three, as a public ministry gift in 1 Corinthians 14, 5, and 13. And many people get tripped up on the tongues issue. They shouldn't. All three of these function today. But the issue is that we see that gift misapplied and misused. Most often, not intentionally misused. It's just a lot of people haven't studied and pulled their application from Scripture. They just kind of pull it from culture. Okay, Again, the most important issue at Pentecost is not tongues. The bigger issue is that a once-weak Peter, he finally transformed into a bold witness. Now, if you remember way back, it was in episode number two of this Life Lift series, I, I talked about how Jesus called Peter forth as a rock, even though he appeared more like shifting sand. This is that first encounter where really we see Peter as permanently strong. And the result is that 3,000 people, they're saved. So tongues isn't the goal. Uh, Tongues is simply a means God uses to exalt Jesus and then draw people to himself 
the first post-resurrection Pentecost celebration, it makes this clear. Now, let me give you the second occurrence. The second occurrence is in Acts 8, 4 and following. It's in Samaria. Philip, who is one of the seven that were chosen to be leaders in Acts 6, 1. Sometimes people refer to them as the first deacons. He actually leads a revival. So in Acts 6, the early church set aside men who were, quote, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, read Acts 6.3, to oversee food distribution for the widows. This allowed the apostles to focus more on, here's the quote, ministry of the word and prayer, ensuring that the church met both the spiritual needs and the practical needs of the people. Both of these were important, so important that they didn't want to neglect either one. Now, soon thereafter, the church grows, and as might be expected, persecution increases, uh, Stephen, who was one of the seven, he became the first Christian martyr. Uh, Saul, who soon to be Paul, he held the cloaks of the executioners and consented to Stephen's death, according to Acts 8.1. That then leads us to Philip's story. So I'm going to outline it just like I did the previous episode at Pentecost. I'm going to give you the situation. I'm going to give you the result. I'll make a couple of notes and observations. So here's the situation. Philip ends up in Samaria. Uh, The church with the persecution, a lot of the people scatter. Philip scatters, ends up in Samaria where he begins preaching. Now, notably, the waiting on tables, that's the phrase that was used in Acts 6. It did not exclude the first seven deacons from preaching the word. As Stephen, the first martyr, he preaches the longest sermon contained in the book of Acts. Chapter 7 is mainly his sermon. And then Philip launched a full-throttle revival in Acts 8, 5, and following. People were saved. They're healed. They're freed of demons, just like they were all throughout the ministry of Jesus. Here's the result. The apostles then send Peter and John from Jerusalem to, according to Luke's own words, to, now catch this phrase, this is in Acts 8, 15, pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is extremely interesting to me because mass conversions have already taken place. Uh, Mass conversions so numerous that the local wizard, Simon, uh, sometimes referred to as Simon the Magician or Simon Mangus, the local wizard believed in Jesus, according to Acts 8, 12, and 13. That means that according to other places in Scripture that these people already have the Holy Spirit in the conversion sense of the relationship. Now, again, let me give you a footnote. You might want to go back and listen to the previous talk where I talked about that. Does it happen at conversion or does it happen after conversion? That's going to come up again in a moment. So when the two apostles arrive, they lay hands on the people and pray. And then according to Acts 8, 17, the Holy Spirit falls on them. This is subsequent and in addition to the initial salvation encounters. Simon the Magician, he visibly witnesses the power, and he sees some evidence that the Holy Spirit has fallen. We're not told what the evidence is that he sees. We do know that he's already seen healings. We do know that he's already seen bold proclamation of the gospel. We do know that he's seen deliverance from demonic strongholds, and even some other things. Like Luke just says that more happened, Acts 8, 6, and 7. He wants to purchase whatever power it is, though. Some people suggest, and in fact, some people emphatically argue that it may have been the gift of tongues that he saw, but here's the deal. The scripture remains silent on that point. So get this, Peter and John, 
they go lay hands, the Holy Spirit falls. We don't know if speaking in tongues happened or not. You can't make a formula. So that leads me into my notes, okay? Here's the notes, the observations. This passage says nothing about the gift of tongues. Laying on of hands, that is featured. Uh, Luke tells us explicitly that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. That's uh, Acts 8, 17, and 18. Uh, in other places, uh, we see the laying on of hands is used for healing as well as for imparting spiritual gifts to people. Um, I'll put some notes uh, for you, like look up maybe 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, 1 Timothy 5.22, and even Old Testament, Deuteronomy 34.9. But I want you to notice the difference between the encounter with the Holy Spirit at Samaria and at Pentecost. There are at least two that I want to highlight. First, we don't see anything about laying on of hands at Pentecost, yet we do see that in Samaria. It's important to me that Simon sees something with the laying on of hands that causes him to want to buy the power to do the same thing. Again, Acts 8.19. Growing up in the church, I was taught that the laying on of hands was largely symbolic. Scripture seems to point in the opposite direction, though, that we actually impart something through the gift of touch. Here's the second observation. Consider the time which elapses between the salvation encounter and the subsequent baptism of the Spirit. Whereas the Holy Spirit fell on the 120 at Pentecost, a mere 10 days after Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on them in the upper room, it's likely that the salvation encounters in Samaria happened a few weeks before, and John appeared to lay hands on the people there just because of travel time. Okay, remember, word first traveled from Samaria back to Jerusalem, and then they made their way to there with the journey. In other words, a significant amount of time lapsed between the conversion encounter and the subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit encounter. Here's the bottom line. Even in the first two episodes, we see that God can't fit in a box. Okay. Now, that said, there is one common thread woven through every encounter. And, and I want to go ahead and make an observation because we're going to see it in the next encounter here in Acts 9. It's this, the Holy Spirit always shines the spotlight on Jesus, never on the Spirit himself. That leads me to the third occurrence, Acts 9, 10 through 19. Saul becomes Paul after being blinded on the road to Damascus. Now, Saul was one of the ringleaders of the early persecution, which caused the seven and the other disciples to flee from Jerusalem, taking the gospel with them. After consenting to Stephen's stoning, that's Acts 8.1, we read that Saul was ravaging the church, the direct quote, Acts 8.3, ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So after reporting Philip's revival in Samaria, Luke circles back to Saul's story. Luke tells us that before his beautiful collision with Jesus on the Damascus Road, Saul visited the high priest in Jerusalem and received letters giving him authorization to arrest any, here's the word, followers of the way. They weren't yet called Christians. Any followers of the way that he found in the synagogues in Damascus. So that leads us to one of the most famous conversion stories of all, Here's the situation. Jesus intercepts Paul while he's en route, then called Saul, with his letters. A light blinds him, and Saul falls to the ground. He instantly recognizes Jesus as Lord, implying that salvation has come in a moment. That's in Acts 9.5. 
Jesus teaches Saul that he's actually been persecuting him. Then he instructs him to go wait for the messenger who he's about to send. Now, notice that, that Jesus uh, is so intricately linked with his people, with his body, because, again, Scripture teaches us that Christ is in us, uh, moving through us, as, as we learned a couple of talks ago, that when anyone um, persecutes one of Jesus' people, it is as if you're doing that to Jesus himself. Now, during this time, Ananias is told to go lay hands on Saul, for Saul is the Lord's chosen instrument. That's Acts 9.15. It's interesting that Ananias is led by the Spirit here. Now, notice this, through direct revelation in prayer. That, that's something that we've not yet seen a whole lot of in Scripture. Uh, we take that in our culture as really the norm, but we're just starting to see this happening in the Bible. Uh, Ananias has no other evidence that Saul has been converted, uh, and he actually reminds the Lord in that prayer time of Saul's reputation that he is a persecutor. So here's the result. (laughs) Though he's hesitant at first, Ananias obeys and he goes to see Saul. He lays hands on Saul for two specific reasons. Now, I'm going to read you the text from Acts 9.17 and notice this. He goes up to him and he says, Brother Saul. So that answers the conversion question. Saul is, at this point, a follower of Jesus. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, he sent me to you so that, notice this, one, you may regain your sight, and two, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So two things occur after Ananias prays. First, Saul regains his sight immediately. Second, he grows Here's the quote from Acts 9.22. He grows more and more powerful in his witness. We can infer that that second is a result of Saul being filled with the Holy Spirit because that's what Ananias proposed would happen. That's the reason he was laying hands on him. Now, let me, let me give you a few notes um, because for each of these, remember, I've been giving you the situation, the result, and then just a few notes and observation. Here's the notes. Saul who later becomes Paul, he was already considered a brother when those two things happened, the healing and then the filling of the Holy Spirit. Ananias clearly addressed him as brother, Acts 9.17. So remember Paul, uh, apparently, though he's not renamed until Acts 13.9, um, he addressed Jesus as Lord on the road to Damascus when he was stopped, Acts 9.5. He even offered his allegiance to him at that moment in Acts 9.6. So here's what I want you to see, and here's some things we don't see. First, Ananias lays hands on Paul that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit, that he might be filled. He doesn't use the word baptism at all, yet at the same time, this is an encounter that happens after his salvation encounter. Now, second, we see absolutely nothing mentioned about tongues in this entire passage. Now, we do know that Paul later spoke in tongues uh, more than anyone else, according to his own testimony in 1 Corinthians 14, 18. And we know that Paul desired for everyone to speak in tongues. He says that in 1 Corinthians 14, 5. Now, whether or not he received that ability when Ananias laid hands on him is purely hypothetical. You just don't read it in the text. So, so get this, at, at, at this point in Scripture... We've seen one of the three encounters include tongues, 
but it was foreign languages. We've not yet seen how people typically use the tongues issue. It, it's coming, but we haven't yet seen it, even though that seems to be the one thing that everybody lands on. Okay, third observation. After this encounter, according to Acts 9.22, Paul grew more and more powerful. This is apparently spiritual strength. And remember, this is exactly what happened to Peter when the Holy Spirit baptized him in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit is not power to speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit is power for witness. That's the one consistent factor that we've seen thus far. The Holy Spirit always empowers people to elevate Jesus' fame. So, so far we've evaluated three post-salvation encounters with the Holy Spirit. We've evaluated Acts 2, 1-4. through That's Pentecost where the Spirit falls on the 120, just 10 days after Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on them. Uh, There was no laying on of hands. We do see tongues present, but it's in the form of foreign languages. The second encounter was in Acts 8, 4 and following. That was the Samaritan revival with Philip, where the Holy Spirit falls on the people possibly weeks or months after their salvation encounter. There's no mention of tongues there, but we do see the laying on of hands. And then the third encounter we just looked at, that's Acts 9, 10 through 19. Saul becomes Paul after being blinded on the road to Damascus. The Spirit is imparted to him three days after his salvation encounter. That's a lot quicker time. The laying on of hands is mentioned. No mention of tongues. Let's look at the fourth encounter, the fourth occurrence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the phrase I'm using. Um, Because this meeting, again, it's going to show us that there is no one-size-fits-all mold. Here's the fourth occurrence. It's in Acts 10, 1 uh, and following. Particularly if you're taking notes or if you're just going to flip open to your Bible, you're going to want to look at Acts 10, 34 and following, where Cornelius and his household become the first Gentile converts. Now, Cornelius is a devout, God-fearing Gentile. A God-fearer was the name, it's a title that was given to Gentiles who followed the religious routines of the Jews. He had a vision in which an angel clearly told him to call for Peter by name to come share the gospel with him. That's Acts 10.5 and following. The following day, Peter also had a vision. It was the sixth hour of prayer, which is noon. Their day started at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour, hour of prayer is at noon. Peter becomes hungry. He experienced uh, the well-known vision of the sheet descending from heaven that was full of what would have been ceremonially unclean animals, which Peter was now told he could eat. These animals were now clean. As Peter reflected on what that vision meant, Cornelius' delegation arrived asking for him by name. The next day, Peter and his host then traveled to Cornelius' house. This is in Acts ten seventeen. So let's talk through the situation, the result, and then make some notes and observations. Here's the situation. Peter arrived and he was greeted by Cornelius, who detailed why he sent for him. With his entire family present, he told Peter this. He said, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That's in Acts 10.33. Here's the result. After acknowledging that the Lord truly calls all people to himself, Peter preached the gospel to them. This is in Acts 10.37 and following. Here's what happens, though. He's interrupted. Uh, Luke writes in Acts 10.44 and 45, he says, this is his quote, 
While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice how they knew the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them according to Acts 10.46. Here's the quote. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. That said, let's make a couple notes and observations. Here's the first. Peter, Peter concluded that the Spirit rushed on Cornelius and his family in the same way that it happened to them at Pentecost. This meant that they also needed to be water baptized. So a few interesting things are occurring. Uh, we don't see the laying on of hands. Uh, Peter never even prays for them. There's not even a formal invitation or salvation call like you see in churches. They interrupt his sermon and start praising and worshiping and praying in tongues. That means that we do see speaking in tongues. This becomes evidence to Peter that something supernatural occurred. Peter observed that if the subsequent encounter has incurred, the first must have already happened. That, that is, uh, to use other language, if the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred, then obviously the Holy Spirit has already moved in and you were already a Christian. Notice then that these encounters happen in reverse order. We clearly see a subsequent or secondary encounter with the Holy Spirit. It's not called a baptism here, but we do see speaking of tongues. But that event, it happens before water baptism, which was always the signifier of conversion. So Peter concluded, and he declared to everyone there that the first encounter, salvation, must have already occurred too because of what he's seeing. Now, you can look at that in Acts 10.47. In fact, I, I've got all these verses, just the verse numbers in the show notes, if you want to go take a deep dive into your text and see just what your Bible says. Um, so, so Peter says they should all be baptized in water since it's apparent that they've already been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then that leads to this next fifth final encounter that's equally interesting. The fifth encounter, it occurs in Acts 19, 1 through 10, is the disciples at Ephesus where they receive the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a little bit of background. Apollos, he's a mighty order. He'd been teaching at Ephesus. Now, I want you to notice something Luke reports to us about his theology, though, in Acts 18, 25. Before we get into the story, uh, Luke says that he spoke and taught accurately the things of Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. Okay, he knew of John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance designed to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, who was Jesus, according to Matthew 3, 1. So you got to go way back in the New Testament to get this one. Uh, John's baptism, it was a baptism of, I'll say it like this, behavior modification of ceasing wrong behaviors and doing the right ones in the same way in which the sacrifices of the law reminded people of sin and highlighted the need for a permanent resolution to the sin issue, so also did the baptism of John remind people of the need for grace. Uh, the gospel is more than simple morality, though. It includes morality, but it goes beyond that. A gospel includes power, the Holy Spirit's power to change. Um, so earlier, uh, I had this 
conversation with you. I think it was life lift number seven in this series. And I said that without love, people just veer into legalism. And so here's what we're going to say is that without power, the church just has a form of godliness or or morality, but it lacks an expression of the supernatural. I'll, I'll put a picture right here, a graphic in the show notes where you can really see what I'm talking about because I had referenced that we wanted to not walk in a spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1.7, but walk in a spirit of power, love, and sound mind. We've already talked about the love, so now we're really getting to this idea of walking in the Holy Spirit's power. We don't just want morality, we want power. We don't just want a form of godliness, we want to walk in the supernatural. Anyway, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they heard Apollos teach, and then they explained to him the way of God more accurately, according to Acts 8.26. That is, those two apostles, Priscilla and Aquila, are referred to as apostles throughout the scripture. They are a husband and wife team. One is a woman apostle. One is a man apostle. And it is intentional, I believe, that the woman is listed first, Uh, We'll come back to that maybe in another episode. Uh, They supplied him with some details that he was lacking um, about the presence of of the Holy Spirit. I I believe he's missing a lot. Christianity isn't just right thinking. It's not just right living. It's about becoming a new creation, that Kanos word that we talked about, that lives the power of God, expressing his presence through us via the supernatural. So after learning this, Apollos took a more complete message to Corinth, and Paul returned to Ephesus where Apollos was. So they they effectively swapped places. The two leaders changed locations according to Acts 19.1. So Corinth blossomed under Apollos' skilled teaching. The church began growing. This is why you have that verse in 1 Corinthians 3.6 where Paul gets on to the church. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. So what are all these fractions? Some of you say that I follow Paul and some say I follow Apollos. And some are even saying, what? I follow a guy that's not even been here. I follow Peter. He says, no, 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 no. Apollos was there. I planted. Apollos watered. God gives the growth. So the, all of these are benefit for you. So anyway, Paul was in Ephesus where Apollos had been, and he starts supplying what those believers lacked because under Apollos's leadership, he only knew the baptism of John. He did not know all of the identity that we talked about, uh, about Jesus and us having the identity in Christ. He certainly didn't know about the Holy Spirit. So here's the situation that Paul encounters. Okay, lots of back information there. While Apollos grew the church in Corinth, Paul Paul discovered that the disciples he left behind, get this, hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Okay, remember, Apollos the teacher, he hadn't either until Priscilla and Aquila provided him with the details. So when Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's something that we would all say, yeah, of course. But they told him, according to Acts 19.2, They'd never even heard of the Holy Spirit. They claimed that they were baptized into the name of John. So Paul taught them uh, that John looked forward to Jesus who had already come. Now, now it's easy to kind of look at these guys and say, man, they were backwards. But it's possible they didn't yet know Jesus had come because of the distance from Ephesus to Jerusalem. Okay, we're still just a few years out from the resurrection at this point. So upon hearing the story of Jesus, 
they were all baptized in the name of Jesus. Because again, John was pointing people to that. Here's the result. Because again, remember, we're talking situation, result, then making some notes and observations. Here's the result. After hearing this, Paul, get this, laid hands on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying, making this the only passage we've studied so far where we see both laying on of hands and speaking of tongues combined together. You can see that in Acts 19, 6 through 7. Uh, let's make a couple observations. Uh, notes here. It seems that Apollos lacked information about the work of Jesus and the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. When he was taught the way of God more accurately, that's the verse that's used, the scripture, Acts 18.26, this must have been one of the missing ingredients, thereby explaining the powerful witness he gave at Corinth, such that even Paul's former church exploded with growth. So, Apollos was able to grow that way, that church in a way Paul, Paul had not been able to do so. Um, again, find that in 1 Corinthians 3.6.2. In other words, Apollos' knowledge was not complete until he had the full message of the gospel, including salvation, which he probably lacked, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Both were important. So, something was therefore missing in the church at Ephesus that he left behind, and then Paul supplied what was missing. Again, John preached a baptism of repentance, that, that is, he preached that message of behavior modification. But the gospel is more. It not only includes discipline, which is a sound mind, and love, it, it includes the very power working through us that raised Jesus from the dead. So we later re read the results of this throughout the New Testament. Corinth became an explosive church after that encounter. Without power, the church is simply a place of moral behavior. And while morality is important, we've been called to far more than behavior management. So what's the point of all of this? I know I'm giving you a lot of information, but I think it's important for you to see it, though, because the Holy Spirit is central to the ministry of Jesus. Now, furthermore, since Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit after he ascended, that's in John 16, 7, and since he promised the disciples that the Spirit would provide them with power for witness, according to Acts 1.5, and since we see such a close relationship between the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the early church, it's important that you and I, I think, deep dive into this topic. And then since there's so much confusion and innuendo about the Holy Spirit, it's all more important and imperative that we mine through the Scripture, allowing the Spirit who inspired the Word to tell us exactly what He intends to reveal about Himself in it. Okay, like 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says that all Scripture is inspired. It's inbreathed by the Holy Spirit, and it's profitable for doctrine, so what we believe, for, for training, for reproof, and helping us to walk out our righteousness. In the end, as we look at all of these scriptures, look at the text, we learn that we don't need to fear this topic. Quite the opposite, we need to embrace it because we realize that the Holy Spirit always reveals Jesus and the Holy Spirit has come to us so that we might join him in doing the same to empower us to reveal Jesus to the world. Here's, here's another consistent factor. The Holy Spirit always reveals himself in the way he desires, and he manifests himself through people in the way that he deems appropriate. Uh, some people worshiped. Uh, some people enact spoken tongues. Uh, some people uh, needed the laying on of hands. Other people did not. 
all of them connected with Jesus in a greater way, though. And as a result of that, they even pulled other people to that same Jesus in a deeper way. One way the Spirit expresses himself through us is through the spiritual gifts. That is, there are unique ways that he empowers each of us to speak, to share, to serve, uh, to move into this world literally as the hands and feet of Jesus. And when he does that, as you might imagine, it's always to elevate Jesus and benefit his church, which is referred to throughout Scripture as the body of Christ. And to do that in some unique way that, that I believe is unique to you. So here's, here's what I want to do. I'm going to close out this episode as well because there's been so much information that I've given you. I'm going to give you a chart in the show notes where you can look at it, you can compare, you can contrast the different encounters with the Holy Spirit. And when we come back in the next episode, I'll, I'll tell you where this is going to go. We're, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit always comes and it gives us a higher degree of intimacy or I would say it like this, a greater awareness of of just how close the Father is. So let me recap. Uh, last episode, the, the main idea of that was that the role of the Holy Spirit is often misunderstood. It's often <laughs> kind of frightening because of how it's represented. But Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to his church so that we can experience his ongoing presence, we can accomplish his mission, and we can experience this greater intimacy with him. And we saw that there is a salvation encounter and there is this subsequent encounter. In this episode, we walk through every single encounter in the book of Acts, and we said that, hey, there is no box, there is no formula. Sometimes we see speaking in tongues. Most of the time, to be honest, we don't. The main thing that we do see is that the Holy Spirit always reveals Jesus to, to you, and the Holy Spirit has come so that we might join him in revealing Jesus to other people. As we sign off, like we do most every week, my prayer for you is simply this. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord be gracious to you and shine his face of favor upon you. And may you experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit that we're learning a bit more about. May you experience him in a way that's unique to you and that is riddled with the fullness of what we see in the text of scripture. Grace, peace, until next time. Shalom.